This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 23rd, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, David Grimm talks with me live at the AAAS annual meeting about painting sleuths, combating alternative facts, and keeping birds from flying into buildings. News editor Tim Appenzeller discusses the unexpected age of some European cave paintings, which is causing experts to rethink the mental capabilities of Neanderthals. We also have our monthly book segment with Jen Golbeck. She interviews William E. Grassley about his book, A Wilder Time, Notes from a Geologist at the Edge of the Greenland Ice. First up, we have an excerpt from a live podcast event at the AAAS annual meeting with me and David Grimm talking art sleuths. David Grimm, online news editor for science, is here with me at the AAAS meeting in Austin. Dave's been beavering away <laughs> editing stories coming yeah. out of the meeting. And he's brought one on high-tech art sleuthing. Hi, right. Dave. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Good. Tell me about this painting. What are we learning about it? Sarah, do you speak French? No. Good oh, luck with this no. title. Yeah. yeah. So this is a Picasso painting from 1902. And boy, I don't even know if I should try to. Uh, oh, there's a, there's an English translation, the French, but the English trans- translation is the crouching beggar, and it's basically this. It's a landscape scene. It's a, a picture of a woman crouching. You can see a picture of this on the site. What's interesting about this painting is we know that this wasn't the original painting on the canvas. There was another Barcelona artist that painted on this canvas before Picasso took to it, and actually some of what this artist painted, some mountains and stuff. Picasso seems to have taken some inspiration from that, and that, you know, the mound sort of became a bit of the outline of the woman. That's really cool, too, because if you look at the two paintings on the site, the underpainting, the really old one, the older one is horizontal, but Picasso's is vertical. That's right. That's really cool. Right. Yeah, and they've known about that underpainting for a long time. Right. In 1992, researchers used X-ray radiography to find out that there was a painting behind the painting, that there was this landscape painting that another artist had painted. But in this new study, the researchers wanted to delve even deeper. Mm -hmm. What else is going on in this painting? What else is sort of hidden behind this 1902 Picasso painting? Because they saw something... They see some cracks, and they, they sort of deduce that something else is going on behind there. Yeah. And, you know, they had already used X-ray radiography in the past. So in this new study, they used a couple of new techniques. One is called hyperspectral infrared <laughs> reflectography. And basically, this involves shining light of different wavelengths on an object. And what's really kind of cool is at certain wavelengths, paint actually becomes transparent. So you can actually see what's going on 
behind the paint. Yeah. And what this is the one where they revealed what was kind of between these two paintings, right? Right. Basically, what they found with this technique was they found another hidden layer of painting that they hadn't discovered before. And in fact, under the woman's cloak, Picasso seems to have painted an image of the woman's hand clutching a piece of bread. Now, at some point, he decided he didn't want that because we don't see that in the final painting. Most of the woman is actually obscured by the cloak. And what the researchers say is it gives us a really interesting insight into what Picasso's sort of thinking at the time. You know, he's like, well, maybe I should have the woman doing something. He originally paints that. And then for some reason, he decides, no, I don't want her actually actively clutching anything, doing anything with her hands in the painting. Let's cover her. So they don't think it was a purposely hidden layer underneath the top layer. Well, I mean, he did. I mean, right. He decided to paint over that because he didn't want that reflected. Now, another technique he used was something called macro x-ray fluorescent imaging and this really involves zapping the painting with x-rays and what the researchers did there was they saw they were able to see the elements that make up the plane the paint for example picasso seems to have used a lot of lead uh, in his white paint for instance and this can give us a little bit of insight into what was on his palette and why he was choosing to maybe use certain colors over others did any of this reveal more about the underpainting, the older painting that's underneath. Not really, but now that the researchers have these new techniques and these new images, they're really curious about this underlying painting. Who was the artist that painted it? Why was it painted over? Was the artist painting a night scene or a yeah. day scene? All this stuff can actually be potentially uh, figured out with some of these new techniques. And actually, one of the researchers behind this has actually traveled to Barcelona to see if you can figure out exactly what landscape was being painted in this original painting, which is Very kind of neat. Cool. On our second day of live podcasting, Dave and I discuss communication in the era of fake news and preventing birds from crashing into tall objects. David Grimm, editor for our online news site, is here with me at the AAAS annual meeting in Austin. Dave has some more stories. It's Sunday, so things are winding down. Hi, Dave. Hey, sir. So let's talk about facts first. Alternative facts. Alternative facts? Yes. Regular facts? Uh, fake facts? Fake facts. Fake news. Fake okay, news. we've heard yes. these terms a lot, and why do we have a session on it? Well, so the idea was, you know, there's a lot of scientists out there that are frustrated with this idea that there could be more than one version of the facts. You know, this was this term, alternative facts, sort of became popular when U.S. President Donald Trump took office. And a lot of scientists want to push back and they want to find out how can we fight back against these quote-unquote alternative facts and let the public know that there's really only one <laughs> there's only one fact, right? It's just, it's just uh, there's the, a fact, fact and then there's a falsehood. You yeah. Know? And how do we sort of bring people more onto that way of thinking rather than just sort of trying to dismiss anything they don't agree with as false or as some sort of, um, you know, alternative to the truth. And this is a session of news you can use. So it wasn't just right. panelists pointing to their research, their slides. It was actually like engaging with the audience That's right. and answering questions about how you can deal with this at Thanksgiving dinner, how you can deal <laughs> right. with this when you're talking to a group. So what are some of the tips that they shared? Well, so one of the one of the tips was appeal to the 60%. That's a, the idea is that you've, if you've got this group of people, there's going to be a spectrum of beliefs mm-hmm. and there's going to be 20% on each side that are really dug into it's their like positions. It's like a ner- normal distribution, is that what you're I guess so. <laughs> and so the idea is the people that are really dug in on either end of the spectrum, it's, it's a waste of your time to try to convince them. You're never going to convince them. Right. But there's this 60% in the middle whose attitudes may be a bit more malleable, and those are the people you should target. And to get back to the science part of this, this is something that people have validated. This is not just 
conventional wisdom, right? Right. This is, uh, I think, believe this has been sort of empirically evaluated. Okay. What are some of the other tips they talked about? So one of the other ideas is appeal to shared values. So, you know, one of the speakers talked about a climate scientist named Catherine Hayo, who's an evangelical Christian. And the way she makes inroads with her fellow evangelicals is to talk about their shared worldview and to sort of use that as sort of a bridge to talking about things like climate change. Okay. So don't just shout people down and tell them things they don't want to hear. Well, and also just, you know, look for things you have in common, right. you know, you know, even if, you know, maybe, maybe it's religion, you know, politicians like to say, you know, you and I both ride the train to work every day. So we have something in common. <laughs> okay. Just try to find those shared experiences so that you're not coming in as sort of this alien being that, you know, has all these beliefs that are so foreign to somebody yeah. else. It's, you know, we have a lot in common and facts can be something we have in Here's common Here's how too. those fit in with our exactly. worldview. And what exactly. about this golden child idea? Well, what? this idea that, you know, every group has a, a member that's very admired, potentially, like you, Sarah, <laughs> for podcasting. So if you can, you know, if you can convince the golden child, you may be able to convince the rest of the group okay. as well. Let's also talk about this bird story. This is about preventing birds from running into things or flying into things very high in the air. Right. Do we know why birds fly into tall objects like wind turbines, skyscrapers? Yes, yeah, so this is a major problem. Millions of birds slamming into buildings, wind turbines, other structures every year. One of the reasons is that they don't, their eyes don't face forward when they're flying. And so they've got this huge blind spot in front of them. And so they're not really paying attention to right, what's right in front of them. Obviously, then we have this problem where millions of birds are potentially dying every year because they're slamming into these objects. Okay, so they're they're looking down. It's kind of like texting and driving, right? <laughs> right. They're just For running birds, into things. Yes. So, how do the researchers try to like test out a method for getting them to pay attention to where they're going? Well, so the idea is, you know, can we make a sound? You know, it doesn't matter where they're looking. They should be able to hear a loud sound. And what that's what researchers tried in this study. They had 16 zebra finches in a lab. <laughs> and they, they fly through this corridor. The birds fly through this corridor. It's about the length of a bus. And sometimes they could fly all the way through. And sometimes they would be caught in this mesh net, and it's actually not as bad as it sounded. It was a pretty gentle catch, well, so the birds were It's better than a skyscraper, hurt. right? It's better than a skyscraper. And what the researchers found is when they played a loud noise right before the birds were to strike the net, they tended to slow down, and they maybe looked around them a little bit more. And so the researchers say, well, maybe something like an acoustic lighthouse or something that would oh. blare a sound. But they also think the sound itself by itself may not be enough, that you may be able to need you might need to combine the sound with something like a flashing siren or okay, some no. sort of light, something, you know. <laughs> so the idea is that the sound might help, but it's not going to be the right. end-all, be-all. You may have to do some other things. Maybe there's certain kinds of sounds that'll work better. That's true, yeah. So this helps birds, but it also helps us, right? Right, yeah. So for example, you know, we've had airplanes go down, like the famous uh, Miracle on the uh, Hudson. That yeah. was a bird strike. This is not just good for birds, but if we can keep birds away from objects we don't want them near, it could be good for us, too. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. Is there anything else we should keep an eye out for meeting news coming up? Yeah, we've got an interesting story about how babies recover from strokes. I didn't even know babies got oh, strokes. Infants, but... like very, very babies. Yes. And this is very young children that get strokes and how their brains recover much better than they recover when they're adults or uh, when we're, we're adults and we get strokes, especially older adults. And also a story about whether Americans are giving up on science or whether the belief, the American belief in the scientific enterprise is as strong as it's always mm -hmm. been. So keep an eye on our meeting coverage. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir.
Next week, we'll have another excerpt from the annual meeting, an interview with Michael Varnum on what people say will happen if we make contact with aliens. Stay tuned now for an interview with science news editor Tim Appenzeller. He'll be discussing newly dated cave paintings that suggest Neanderthals made art. This week, two papers, one in science and one in science advances, provide new evidence that Neanderthals made art, cave paintings, and painted shells. Tim Appenzeller wrote a new story putting these results together with what researchers in the field used to think about Neanderthal brains. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Okay, so we have audio only here. Can you describe what these uh, cave paintings look like? Well, they're simple. These are, these are not Rembrandts. They are a set of lines that look kind of like a window frame the outline of a hand, a hand stencil, and a painted cave formation. It's a drapery-like formation that has been painted reddish. And where were these found? They are all in Spanish caves. They've been known for a long time. What wasn't known was how old they are. Would the new technology they used to date this put it back before modern humans were thought to be in Europe, right? When, when is the, da- the new date? It varies. But yes, modern humans were thought to have arrived in Europe, are thought to have arrived in Europe 40 to 45,000 years ago. And the dates for these objects and paintings are much, much earlier. So the paintings are all at least 64,000 years old. And the shells are at least 115,000 years old. How did they get these new dates? I mean, how do you date something that's painted on rock? Which thing is, you know, amenable to checking on? Yeah, well, they don't date the painting itself. What they date is the crust of calcite that forms over the paintings in some caves, providing the painting has some flowing groundwater, mm-hmm. a thin crust of calcite can be deposited on the painting. It's the same stuff that forms stalagmites and stalactites. Right. And so if there's this layer over top of the painting, you know the painting is older? It has to be at least as old as the layer, and it could be thousands of years older. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have very exciting news for a lot of people in this field. And it's kind of a shock, right? They weren't expecting to see art from Neanderthal hands? No, not at all. There's been a long argument. It's gone on for decades and decades about what Neanderthals were sort of capable of, what their their brains could do. Right. You know, recently, it's been clear that they were capable of more sophisticated behavior and and technology than had been thought. Uh, People have found things like elaborate wooden spears, a glue that they made from tree bark, tree resin, sorry, Mm -hmm. for hafting spear points onto spears. A couple of years ago, some French cavers found these weird uh, constructions deep in a French cave. Uh, They're basically big rings of broken stalagmites, and they're 300 meters into the cave. They weren't built for shelter, that's, that's for sure. They must have been built for ritual purposes. And those two, those two have been dated to 175,000 years ago. So, so obviously things were going on in Neanderthal minds. They weren't as different from us as had been thought. What were modern humans, the ancestors of modern humans doing at these times? Were they also painting things, building things, designing things? Well, they were. Just elsewhere? In, in Africa and, uh, and in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Yes, they were creating shell beads painting them and piercing them uh, so they could use them as body ornaments. They were engraving designs into into ochre and into ostrich eggshells. 
They weren't painting caves. Mm -hmm. So this really raises the possibility or actually makes it seem quite likely that the Neanderthals were the first to go deep into caves and paint the walls. Wow. All right, Tim. So how are we ever going to resolve what it was like to be a Neanderthal, what their thinking was like, what their social life was like? I mean, we have such tiny clues. Do you see anything in the next few years that might give us even more information? Well, they are tiny clues, or they have been up till now, and it looked like this debate was going to go on forever. But this discovery, three different sets of paintings are mm-hmm. far too old to, been made, to have been made by modern humans, really does push the ball forward quite a lot. And uh, I think there's no reason to think that we won't find equally dramatic sort of things that change our picture yet again in the coming years. Okay. Thank you so much, Tim. Tim Appenzeller is the news editor for Science. He writes about Neanderthal art this week in the magazine. You can find a link to his article and the studies at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Next up, we have Jen Goldbeck. She'll be talking with William Grassley about his book, A Wilder Time, Notes from a Geologist at the Edge of the Greenland Ice. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Goldbeck, and welcome to the February book segment. This month, we're reading William Glassley's A Wilder Time, Notes from a Geologist at the Edge of the Greenland Ice. And this is a little different than a lot of the books we cover because it's not a straight-up science book. It's more of a love letter to Greenland from a scientist who worked there. There is a lot of interesting science in the book, but it's also this beautiful narrative that shares the emotion that comes with doing science, something that we scientists so often push aside to objectively report the results of our work. So William Glassley is joining me, and I'm hoping you can tell us what got you to the place where you decided you wanted to write a book that combined science, a very objective thing, with your very moving personal emotional connection to Greenland. started going to Greenland um, several decades ago, and I never went there intending to write a book. Uh, I went there simply to do the science that I was interested in at the time, although I really enjoyed wilderness areas, hiking, camping, Um, being in the wild, doing geology. I did not expect the experience I had in Greenland to be what it turned out to be. Um, It was transformative. And the reason it was, was because when I went there to do the science, we were there for a month, completely isolated from the rest of the world, and had a chance to wander through this huge wilderness area. And I kept thinking... This is not what I expected. The opportunity to do very analytical, objective work in the field is a very powerful and moving thing. But being able to do it in a setting that is as stunningly beautiful and as wild as Greenland was, was a shock to me. It insinuated itself inside me in such a way that I could not... Once we came back from Greenland, I could not stop thinking about it. And so I started writing memories. I jotted down and I I kept doing that for a period of time, trying to relive what had happened. We continued going back over the next 20, 30 years. Every time we would go, the, the experience of place became more and more powerful. And I realized in the process that... This was as much doing uh, about doing science as as the science was. Can you talk about that a little more? Because this is something we don't get very much of in science. 
Do you think it's important for scientists to communicate science in a way that shares that very personal experience we have while we're doing our work? Why do you think this matters to us as scientists? Um, you know, we as scientists are representatives of the human species. We dedicate our lives to learning things that we then share with the rest of humanity. And it's a way of informing ourselves of the context of our existence. And it, it, it occurred to me that it was not honest to keep from the rest of the species the kinds of experiences, human experiences, emotional experiences that, that went along with doing science. And so ultimately, I, I decided the only way I could honor that commitment was to write the book. You capture your experience in a really lyrical way in the book. And to give our listeners a sense of it, I wanted to read the first page of your chapter titled The Sun Wall. To the south of camp and just a bit east stood a majestic rock wall. It rose out of the water, a massive buttress around which the fjord jogged southeast for several miles before continuing its eastward trend to the inland ice cap. It stood for nearly a thousand feet above sea level and dominated the world where we camped. In summer, the sun makes a lazy circuit in the sky, neither setting in the north, even at midnight, nor rising more than 40 degrees above the southern horizon when it reaches its apogee at noon. Low sun angles make for striking shadows, and with the sun orbiting the entire sky, the face and form of things never stay the same. My tent opened to the west, giving me a view down many miles of open fjord water, but the rock wall was to my left and behind me when I would emerge in the morning from my tent. I always turned towards that massive to get a sense of what the day's weather might be. It was, of course, no way to gauge how the day would evolve. High Arctic weather is notoriously mercurial, but even so... Somehow seeing that bulwark in the morning light gave a perspective on the day that would sit with me until we got back to camp in the evening. So I'm also a scientist, and I loved the book and how it brought that emotional experience of doing science, not just getting the results, but also just being in the process of doing the work to people who may not be familiar with it. And I'm wondering if you've shown the book to your colleagues and other scientists and what their response is to this, you know, not really traditional way of describing science. Did they understand where you were coming from? Absolutely. And it's been interesting for me to uh, share this book with colleagues um, all over the world. I've talked with other geologists people who have been to wild places, wilderness areas all over the planet. And it's been fascinating to me, the, the, the response. Um, some people have said, oh, yes, that's exactly what I want to do, too. I've tried, but it just hasn't worked out. Or it's so badly needed, this kind of thing. And I, it's just um, been overwhelming, actually, to, to have the kind of response from other scientists to this storytelling and I think the sharing of experiences and I think it speaks volumes to um, something that many of us who are doing science and it doesn't matter what kind of science there is this emotional con component that we want to get out but we have worked so hard to be objective and rigorous and unemotional so that we can unbiasedly convey what we do, that we've suppressed this uh, other human side of the experience. Do you think this lesson has implications beyond just bringing the beautiful experience of doing science to the public? As scientists, as this community of people spending their lives gathering knowledge, we are 
in danger of losing our role in how society in general changes over time because we are not doing enough to engage with the broader community of humanity. I think the political turmoil that exists um, around the world in so many different ways could be to some extent affected by scientists becoming more engaged with society. And the reason I believe that is that you know, we live lives that concentrate on rationality, on objectivity, and being wrong is what we're about all the time. And we know that, we accept it. Being able to show that being wrong or uncertain is actually a beneficial way of moving through this world could benefit a lot of people who I think get um, stuck in dogma and uh, certainty when there's so much uncertainty out there. Well, William Glassley, thanks very much for joining us. Well, thank you. The book is A Wilder Time, Notes from a Geologist at the Edge of the Greenland Ice by William Glassley, and it's out this month. And that's it for February. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a comment on the Science Magazine books blog, Books et al., and we'll be back in March with another book to add to your stack. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site at sciencemag.org slash podcasts, where you can also find links to the research and news stories discussed in each episode. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeff Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.